0: Luke chapter 17, beginning now at verse 20. In the bigger context, we're sort of in the last weeks before Jesus arrives at Jerusalem at Passover time for what will turn out to be his uh, crucifixion and then resurrection. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, It's the weeks right before his uh, crucifixion. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, When the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. You know, I'm pretty confident in Bible translations, and I think Bible translations usually do a marvelous job of communicating to us the truth from the ancient Greek or Hebrew writings and giving it to us in the present day. If any of you are curious, because sometimes I get people ask me from time to time, the the translation of the Bible that I use is the New King James Version. To be honest, it's not a very hip version today. People use different versions, but I like it, and I've used it for 30 years, and I think I'll probably use it for a long time more. It's not like I don't think there's other good translations out there today, but I I like it, and there's a lot of different reasons why I like it. However... There's a couple sections here in just these few verses where I think that they could have translated the words much better. And I'll show you what I mean as we kind of understand what's going on in just these first couple verses. Notice it? the Pharisees came and asked Jesus a question. Verse 20 says that they wanted to know when the kingdom of God will come. You can just sort of imagine a hostile Pharisee coming to Jesus. And sort of demanding to Jesus, hey, you say you're the Messiah, either put up or shut up, Jesus. Come on, if you're the Messiah, show us the kingdom and some spectacular signs and wonders. And there was even rabbinic teaching at that time that sort of said that when Messiah come, he would do it with dramatic uh, miracles like fire from heaven and burning up the enemies of Israel and things like they're expecting Jesus to like torch the Roman legions or things like that. Spectacular sort of things. And this is sort of the hostile idea behind the Pharisees at this point. You see, in Jesus's day, just like our own, people longed for the coming of the Messiah. They knew the prophecies in the Old Testament, and they knew the prophecies of the Old Testament spoke of the glory of the coming Messiah. And they wanted that kind of glorious appearing of the Messiah on the earth right at that very time. And so they likely looked upon Jesus... They looked upon his humble followers. I mean, think of what it would be like to look at Jesus. Okay, Jesus, here's your all-star students, and there's the 12 apostles. You know, it, you wouldn't have been struck by saying these were the best and the brightest from all of Israel. You know, Jesus, okay, where's the great demonstration of your power? And he heals some blind people and casts out some demons, which are wonderful. Nobody says that's bad. But come on, why don't you do something to really deliver Israel or exalt Israel? No, those things would be on their mind. Come on, Jesus, show us the stuff. Put up or shut up. And you can just imagine the Pharisees sneering as they said these words. So Jesus replies in verse 20 saying this, the kingdom of God Does not come with observation. This is the first place where I wish there was a better translation here. Because that word observation in the ancient Greek actually has much more the idea of a hostile examination. You see, Jesus made it clear to the Pharisees asking this question that the kingdom of God isn't going to be found by a hostile questioning of the Messiah because that's exactly the manner that they came to him with. You see, Jesus told the Pharisees that their hostile, doubting eyes would be unable to see the kingdom of God and to make it even more demonstrable, look at what he says right there in verse 21. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Again, I hate to say it, but... Right there in that verse, I think, is another unfortunate translation. Because if you take just that statement of Jesus, the kingdom of God is within you. Doesn't that sound very new agey, you know? As if Jesus was looking in the soul of every man and woman and saying the kingdom of God is within you. Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you with great certainty, that is not what Jesus means. And I think we can say that for two reasons. Number one, because of context. And number one, just because of the grammar and the translation. Can we talk about the context first? Does anybody think that Jesus was looking at these hostile, sneering Pharisees and telling them the kingdom of God is within you? I don't think so. Secondly, it is just as valid, perhaps even more valid, because of the construction of the ancient Greek sentence here, to translate it, the kingdom of God is in your midst, or the kingdom of God is among you. And I can't say I know this for sure, but if you allow me just the liberty to, you know, I don't know, what was I going to say? The liberty to impose upon the text just a little bit. I think Jesus said it in this way The kingdom of God is in your midst. And he pointed to himself. Because the kingdom of God was right there in their midst. I can tell you this with great certainty that Jesus was not trying to give some mystical revelation that in some new agey kind of sense that the kingdom of God is within every person, even though we have no problem saying that every person is made in the image of God, but that's something different than what Jesus was speaking about here. No, instead, we understand that any place the king is, that's where the kingdom is. And this is the problem. And this is what Jesus was sort of referring to when he spoke so boldly to the Pharisees. It's because you guys talk about the kingdom, but you're rejecting the king. Don't you see the disconnect there? You say you want the kingdom, but you don't want God in the kingdom. You don't want the Messiah in the kingdom. You want to go off on your own way. You want to go off on your own path. And with those words, Jesus confronted the Pharisees and just basically shut them down. I am the king. Anywhere I am is a manifestation of the kingdom. And if you're rejecting me, then you don't want the kingdom at all. Now do you see what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom doesn't come through your hostile examination? If you want to know anything about the kingdom, the first thing you should do is make peace with the king and honor him. Now going on, starting at verse 22, Jesus is now going to begin speaking to his disciples. And he's going to talk to them about the kingdom. I want you to notice something. Now from verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. From verse 22 to the end of the chapter, Jesus speaks to his disciples. He's not primarily speaking to the Pharisees. You could say this, that this is somewhat of an in-house conversation. These are for those who are his disciples. Because what he's going to tell them are different aspects regarding his glorious return and the establishment of his kingdom upon this earth. Look at it, starting now at verse 22. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of the one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven. So also the son of man will be in his day. Jesus begins this little section first by saying in verse 22. That the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. You see, he told them that after he left this earth, the days would come when the disciples of Jesus would long to hear, would long for the Messiah's return. It must have been a strange dynamic for the disciples to hear Jesus speak about his second coming. It's like, Jesus, why would we want the second coming? You're here right now. But he's telling them right now. No, no, no. There's going to be a Separation. And you, the disciples, and those who are afar off, there will come the day when you earnestly long for my return. Now, they would long for it, but that would make them vulnerable. That's why he says in verse 23, And they will say to you, look here or look there. You see, Satan would love to take advantage of the longing that they had for the return of Jesus and to seduce them in the midst of that longing for the return of Jesus, to seduce them into following a false Messiah. Therefore, he says, do not follow after these false messiahs. You saw it right there in verse 23 where he says, do not go after them or follow them. You see, in the centuries, After Jesus spoke these words, there have been many people who have claimed to be the Messiah. And even some of them had very significant followings. Jesus solemnly warned them, do not go after these false messiahs. Do not go after these pretended uh, messianic people. A great Bible scholar who is from a Jewish background named Dr. Charles Feinberg He said that in the course of Israel's history since the time of Jesus, that there have been at least 64 notable different messiahs that have emerged at different times in Israel's history or in Jewish history since the time of Jesus. And we know that even in our own day, in the not very distant past, You've had people like David Koresh, like Jim Jones, like some young moon and many others. They've all claimed to be the Messiah. Matter of fact, The the man who was claimed by Orthodox Jews to be the Messiah, a a man named uh, the Brooklyn Rabbi Mendel Schneerson, many people or many Orthodox Jews in Israel and other places earnestly believe that he was the Messiah. They put up posters all over Israel. Matter of fact, you can still see iconic pictures of Rabbi Schneerson around Israel today with the expectation that he's still the Messiah and they believe that he's going to rise from the dead. So again, this idea of this expectation of the Messiah leading them to put their focus on a false Messiah, this is what Jesus is warning them against. But notice what he says in verse 24. He said that his return would be, in this sense, likened to lightning that flashes across the sky. In other words, he's saying this, when I come back in glory, nobody is going to miss it. Does anybody miss it when lightning flashes across the sky? Everybody knows that it's happened. And Jesus says, no, this is exactly how it's going to be when I return. It's not going to be in some secret place, in some secret appearing, in some secret return to the earth. No, the whole world will know when I return in glory. Now, that's sort of a marvelous thing for Jesus to say. But look, he wants to point something out. And it's almost as if Jesus is looking off into the far horizon. And he's thinking of the greatness of his return and glory. It's almost as if he can see it some thousands of years off hence. And now Jesus brings the focus right back. And he thinks of the task that immediately awaits him in Jerusalem. Because look at verse, what is it now? Verse 25. But first, Jesus said. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What a strange thing for a glorious, triumphant Messiah to say. The man who was fully God and fully man. The one who had all authority in his hands. The one who would return to this earth and be the true Messiah and fulfill every messianic expectation and come in such glory that it would be described as lightning flashing from one set of the sky to the other end of the sky for that one to say, but first, this is what must happen. I must suffer. I must be rejected and it'll be rejected by this generation. Look at it right there in verse 25. But first, he must suffer. We've got to admit that there's a tendency in many of the followers of Jesus to just kind of want to skip the cross and right go to the glory of the second coming, isn't it? I mean, I can speak about that sort of almost as a picture of where we kind of want to go in our lives. We kind of want to shortcut the cross if we can. So give me the glory, Lord. I want the glory. And Jesus says, No, 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 the glory is out there. Don't worry. The glory will happen. It'll flash like lightning from one end of the sky to the other. Nobody will miss the glory. Don't worry about that. But there may be a cross appointed on the way there. And that's exactly what Jesus says was him. I tell you the word that sticks out to me. Look at it there. Did you see it in verse 25? Must suffer many things and be rejected. Man, I could think all day long upon that phrase. First of all, must. It was a necessity. It had to happen. He must suffer those things. Secondly, he must suffer and be rejected. And when Jesus said that, he knew he was speaking about his own self. And he knew he was speaking about the suffering and the rejection that would come him. And Jesus had the Holy Spirit empowering him. And as God the Father directing him, Jesus had the ability to walk straight into that suffering And was able to face that rejection. I would just caution you that. Isn't this a place where God calls us sometimes to share in. What Paul would later call in the book of Philippians. The fellowship of his sufferings. That Jesus may call us to be rejected by people. Because we make ourselves known as followers of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had that happen to you in your life? I almost feel like saying, if you've never been rejected in some sense for following Jesus Christ, I almost want to say, why not? Because it just shouldn't it happen from time to time in our lives? Now, I'm not asking you to court that rejection. I'm not asking you to go out and chase it. I'm not asking. I'm. Please, nobody should leave here thinking the pastor told me to be obnoxious for Jesus. No, be winning, be winsome, be full of love But nevertheless, I don't think that we can follow a savior who was rejected without from time to time being rejected as well. We just want to make sure of one thing, that if we are rejected for being a follower of Jesus, that we are indeed rejected for being a follower of Jesus. Not for being stupid. Not for being hateful. Not for being, you know, um, I don't know, whatever else you'd want to put on that list. But no, let it be for that. Matter of fact, didn't it say there that he must suffer many things and be rejected and that it would happen by this generation? No, the suffering would come soon. The glorious return would come later. And as we look back now with 2,000 years of knowledge, it would come much later, much further than any of those disciples ever believed. No, the glory would come later, but the suffering would come in that generation. And now Jesus talks what more of his coming, starting here at verse 26, where he says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This should excite some people in here. Because Jesus is telling you something about... The conditions of the world when he's going to return in glory. When he will be revealed in his glory. So we should leave this with great fascination. And what does he say the conditions of the world would be like? Notice it here. Verse 26 where he says, And as it was in the days of Noah. You see, by showing the similarity to Noah's day, Jesus described a world that continued in the normal routines of life. Do you see the description there in verse 27? Where he says people ate and drank. They married wives. They were given in marriage. In some sense, I don't mean this in every sense, but in some sense, it was a world that continued on in what we might call business as usual. People were doing their things. All things continued on as normal. And then he goes on and he explains in verse 28. He says, likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. Now here he's referring back to the destruction that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. That's described in Genesis chapter 19. And the Bible tells us that that uh, destruction came upon Sodom and Gomorrah in the morning. Well, I want you to think the previous day before the morning of judgment, the previous day was seemed like a day just like anybody else, just like any other day, I should say to the people of Sodom. So it came as a surprise to a world that wasn't really looking for it. And that's why Jesus says in verse 30, even so will it be in the day when the son of man is revealed see, even as the world seemed to continue in the normal routines of life in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot relevant to Sodom and Gomorrah, so Jesus said that there would be some sense of normalcy in the world when he is revealed. Now, please understand this. Jesus was not saying for a moment that all would be good. What was a normal day in Sodom and Gomorrah like? It was not a good day. It was not a moral day. It was not, you know, a, a holy day by any means. What was a normal day like on the world before Noah's flood? Was it a good day morally or spiritually? No. So Jesus wasn't trying to say for a moment that it would be, you know, this beautiful, pleasant, great world that God interrupts with his judgments. No, but what he meant was that to the people inhabiting the world, their lives would be going on to what seemed to them as something of a normal life. No, that's what Jesus emphasized with this. So do we have this clear? Jesus said that in some way, in some aspect, When he is revealed, when he comes in glory, it will be to a world that operates business as usual. You know what I find fascinating about this? Is that there are other passages of scripture which clearly and powerfully say that Jesus will return to a world that is in utter cataclysm. Now, does the Bible contradict itself? No, I don't think so. But let me just look at these passages with you for a moment. Look at this. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And in context, Jesus is speaking about the season right before his return. Do you understand what he's saying there in that verse? He's saying, I'm going to return at the worst time in all of human history. I don't know, you know. Having kind of a fancy for history, I like to click off some of the horrible things that have happened in history. I like to think about the Black Death that, you know, killed, what, maybe 25% of Europe. I like to think about this plague, about this war, about this famine, on and on and on, all the death. all the And Jesus says, no, when I return, it's going to be worse than all of that. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 does not sound to me like a business as usual world. Or how about this one from Revelation chapter six? It says this and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men and the commanders and the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Now, without going into great detail, does that sound like a business as usual world? No, not at all. And so I scratch my head. I say, Jesus, what's going on with your word? In some places, you say, I'm going to return to a world that's operating pretty much business as usual with some sense of normalcy in return. In other places, you say, I'm going to return to a world that seems like it's in utter catastrophe and cataclysm. Jesus, which is it? And I think Jesus would respond and say, yes. Yes. And this is why I believe the Bible teaches that there must be two significant different aspects of Jesus' return that are separated by an appreciable period of time. I would say from my study of the scriptures, and again, I hope this doesn't raise more questions than you know it answers or anything. I'm just gonna say, I believe that that period of time is about seven years. And, and that the, the first aspect of Jesus' coming is when Jesus comes for his people. And that's going to come in the context of a business as usual world where people are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. It'll be like the days of Noah. It'll be like the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. That is the first aspect of his coming. The second aspect of his coming is going to be after a time of great cataclysm on the earth. Something that the scriptures call the great tribulation. And that will be the second aspect of his coming. So you see, for me, Instead of this being some kind of Bible contradiction, I think it's a brilliant and beautiful illumination to biblical truth. Now, this is what I want you to notice. What were the two examples that Jesus gave uh, in this passage? Noah and Lot. Do you understand what happened in both of those? God delivered his people and judgment came. God delivered Noah and his family, and judgment came. God delivered Lot and his family, and judgment came. I think that's the same pattern that will happen that Jesus is speaking of right here. Now, look at it here, verse 31. He says in that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house let him not come down to take them away and likewise the one who is in the field let him not turn back remember Lot's wife whoever seeks to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it Jesus here is speaking of the right kind of mentality for his people to have in that day to be ready for this sudden unexpected return that seems to happen in a business as usual world. And I'll tell you, the kind of thing he says we should have is this mentality that has a very light hold on the things of this earth. That if, so to speak, and I'm just kind of speaking in sort of figures of speech, but if, so to speak, you were to hear that trumpet blast where Jesus says, come up to me, that you wouldn't be thinking Oh, but what about the things in my house? What about my safe deposit box? You know, what about this? That you wouldn't even be thinking about those things at all. No, your mentality would be, yes, Lord, I'm coming right now. I'm will- I don't have a firm hold on anything. I am, so to speak, light as a feather. I'm not anchored to anything on this world. That is the mentality that Jesus to have told us to have. And to make the picture even more Strong, If I could say that more strong, I should say stronger to make the picture stronger. You can help me out with my words as I'm going along here. That's all right. To make the picture even stronger. Look at what he says at the end of verse 31 and into verse 32. He says this, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Now, do you remember Lot's wife? Do you remember what happened when God sent the angels To the city of Sodom. To rescue Lot and his family. That God sent the angels. They protected Lot and his family. And when the morning came. The angels were leading them outside. Of the city of Sodom. Because destruction was going to come. And God's pattern was this. I'm going to deliver my people. And then the judgment is going to come. So as God was delivering the people, this is what God spoke to Lot and his family through the angels that were delivering them. He said, get out of here. Don't leave anything. or Excuse me. Don't take anything with you. Look straight ahead and don't look back. Well, what happened? They left the city. And as they were approaching a village named Zoar, what did Lot's wife do? She turned back. Matter of fact, if I could say this, it's even more vivid than that. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 27, or verse 26, it says this. That Lot's wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Looked back behind means two things. She was lingering back and then she looked back. And she looked back upon a world that was perishing. But nevertheless, her heart was wed to. You see, I would say we see the sin of Lot's wife in at least three ways. Number one, Lot's wife lingered behind. This showed that she had some attachment to the things of Sodom and the city of Sodom in her mind. And as she looked back, she lingered behind him, as the text in Genesis chapter 19 verse 26 says. And as Lot and his daughters sought to escape the judgment of God coming upon Sodom, there is his wife lingering behind. Secondly, not only did she linger, but she did not trust and obey the divine word. The angels specifically told them to escape with urgency and to not lag behind, especially don't look back. And she didn't do that. But then finally, she looked at what she was told to turn away from. First she lingered, then she doubted, then she looked. Spurgeon said this, and I think it's a brilliant insight. He said this, she did look back and thus proved that she had sufficient presumption in her heart to defy God's command and risk her all to give a lingering love glance at the condemned and guilty world. By that glance, she perished. You know, somebody can reveal a lot of their heart just with one look, can't they? Can't one glance reveal so much of a person's heart? And that's exactly what it was for Lot's wife. Look, the bottom line, it wasn't so much that her eyes were the problem, but the eyes were reflecting where her heart was. And ladies and gentlemen, her heart was not in God, the deliverance that God offered to her through those angels. Her heart was in Sodom. And it's as if God said this, Mrs. Lot, we don't know her name, do we? Mrs. Lot, if your heart is in Sodom, then you will perish as Sodom and Gomorrah will perish. And she turned to a pillar of salt. By the way, if you take a tour of Israel today, they'll show you pillars. There's probably half a dozen pillars out by the Dead Sea that they'll show you are Lot's wife. Has anybody seen the pillars? Come on, raise your hand if you've seen Lot's wife, haven't you? <laughs> However, listen. There's good reason to believe that whatever happened to Lot's wife, it was gone probably centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth because Jesus didn't say this. He didn't say, see Lot's wife. He said, remember Lot's wife. But I don't care. If you want to go and look at some (laughs) pillar-like formation and say, that's Lot's wife, well, go right ahead. You're welcome to it. Listen, Spurgeon remembered a further tragedy regarding Lot's wife. And this was the further tragedy that he pointed out. That she almost made it. I mean, let's face it. She made it out of Sodom. Let's face it. She made it along the way. And it says that she was turned to a pillar of salt. Not all that far from Zohar, their destination of safety. This is the worst thing. Perhaps the most gripping and terrifying thing about the fate of Lot's wife. She almost made it. If you allow me to quote one more time from Charles Spurgeon, he said this. Doom befell her at the gates of Zoar. Oh, if I must be damned, let it be with the mass of the ungodly, having always been one of them. But to get up to the very gates of heaven and to perish there would be a most awful thing. And look, I, I can say this with fair confidence to everybody in this room. You've come coo- too close to turn back now. Any of you fall away, it's a special tragedy. You've gone too far. You've come out of Sodom. Why give it a look back? Why wedge your heart to it one bit? But rather, rather, keep your eyes on the deliverance that God has for you. Verse 34. I tell you, in that night... There will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. You see, in verse 34, Jesus describes this idea of there being two people and one's taken, the other's left. And this passage is often applied to something that we call the rapture or the rapture of the church. It's that term applied to Jesus coming for his people at a time when the world seems to run with some sense of normalcy or routine. It's that first aspect of Jesus coming. And I know that some people don't like to use the term rapture of the church today. Look, I don't really care. If you want to use it, I don't don't want to call it the catching away. I don't want to care. That doesn't really matter. Just understand that it's a biblical concept. I mean, it seems to me clear that this is what Jesus is referring to. But perhaps the clearest passage in the New Testament that speaks about this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 16, where he says this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now I got to say that these words from Luke chapter 17 seem to describe this phenomenon described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air where Jesus says one will be taken and the other left. Because this will happen during what Jesus described as the normal routines of life, at least in some aspect Someone is sleeping in a bed. Another person is grinding grain. And a third person is working in a field. And they are taken and delivered. And some are not taken. Listen, the emphasis, therefore, is on what? The emphasis, therefore, is on readiness. And this is what I love. I think about any true biblical teaching. About what we sometimes call about prophecy or eschatology or future things that the Bible describes. You know what it all comes down to for me? is readiness. I don't care if you know the Bible so well that you can tell me exactly what 666 means and who it is. And you know, and you even know his social security number. Well, I don't know if he's an American or not, but you get the idea. I mean, I don't care if you know all the details about this or that, the other thing. Look, the bottom line is, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Because Jesus is saying that he could come to a world very much like our own right here, right now. There should be an urgency upon each and every one of us to be ready. Verse 37. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Well, that clears it up, doesn't it? <laughs> What? What? Just what are you talking about? The disciples wanted to know more about this revelation and where it would come. Presumably, and this is how it is in my mind, I don't know if this is, but this is how I sort of construct it. Where are they on their way to? They're on their way to Jerusalem. And if Jesus were to tell them where, where it's going to happen in Jerusalem, they'd be saying, hot dog, this is going to happen soon. We're on our way there. That's why they want to know where, because where was also connected with timing in their minds. Jesus gives them somewhat of an ambiguous answer when he says in verse 37, wherever the body is there, the eagles will be gathered together. It's a difficult statement. Most commentators believe that it was a figure of speech in that day that had the idea of this. When the judgment is ripe, it will surely come. When the eagles are gathered together, the thing's going to happen. It's probably just a figure of speech that everybody was familiar with in in Jesus' day. And so the disciples said, oh, okay, we get what you mean. But you and I, we go, what? What is he talking about? But it probably has that idea. One commentator, William Barclay, says this. That simply meant that a thing would happen when the necessary conditions would be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus saying, when's it going to happen? It's almost as if Jesus said this. It's going to happen when it's going to be happened when the stage is set, when the time is right, when the appointed things happen, that is when it's going to happen. You know, many people look at the world today and they wonder if the coming of Jesus is close. They wonder if the coming of Jesus in the first aspect is close. What many people call the rapture or the catching away of the church. They wonder if the coming of Jesus in the secondary aspect of close his triumphant return where he will come to bring judgment upon the world. They wonder, is it close or is it not? And let me tell you, I can tell you this with great certainty. I don't know. But this is what I do know. The Bible in my mind clearly describes the kind of conditions that will be in the world in the very last days describes spiritual conditions political conditions it describes economic conditions it describes social conditions it describes spiritual conditions and when i look at the description of what the bible says the world will be like in the very last times i say the stage is set now, i'm going to be honest hypothetically, I could say, well, God's just going to set the stage now and he's just going to keep the stage set for another hundred years. Okay, theoretically, that could happen. I could say this, well, God's setting the stage right now, but then he's going to reassemble all the pieces and then he'll set the stage again in a hundred years. Okay, maybe that could happen. But wouldn't I be a fool to notice that the stage is set for Jesus's return and not make sure that I was ready for his return? You know, uh, look at the world today and tell me if the stage isn't set. You know, one of the things that the Bible describes, we're going to get to it in later chapters of Luke, Luke chapter 21, I think. Jesus says that in the very last days, there will be perplexity of nations and distress. In other words, the nations will look around the world and not know how to figure out the problems. Anybody got a solution to figure out things in the Middle East right now? Anybody got the answer for Syria, for Iraq, for Iran? But he got the solution for Egypt on and on and on. And we look at the world where nobody knows what to do. Jesus said it would be just like that at his return. And look, I could just start clicking off the boxes, but you get the point, right? Be ready. Be ready. Jesus is coming soon and we should live like it. Father, that's our prayer. And Lord, I, I pray especially for those who feel that they may be sort of burnt out on the idea of Jesus returning. Maybe, Lord, they were sort of heated up to a boil at some previous time in their life about the return of Jesus, and now they feel like it's just sort of cooled off. Lord, I'm just praying that you make us ready. We want to be ready. We want to live lives that glorify you. We want to live lives that honor you. We want to live lives that are concerned about others coming into your kingdom. And truly being disciples. And Lord, if it was true for you that you must suffer and be rejected. Then whatever part of that you appoint for us to share. Help us to do so in a way that would bring you glory. We pray this Lord in Jesus name. Amen.